I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. This week, we've brought in Brian Doyle, who blogged his weekly epiphanies on our website for over three years, to explain why exactly he's gone on late-night benders watching scads of classic American films. The dog is really into westerns and uh, I think has a crush on Peter O'Toole, which is disturbing. And we're going to eavesdrop on a conversation between two historians about the modern era's first and funniest biographer, John Aubrey. Who is this chaotic guy who collects all these research notes and publishes hardly anything, just this one mad book at the end of his life with a load of spells in it? Now let's talk about everyone's favorite little bug, the Zika virus. Last year, Harriet Washington's cover story blew the lid off the link between infectious diseases and deteriorating mental health in the developing world. This was in the middle of the Ebola crisis, which Western news outlets only seemed to care about once the first cases hit our shores. But that's a totally wrong-handed approach, Harriet argued, because those tropical diseases that seem so distant from us are actually right here in the United States already. And they were here years before you ever heard the word Zika. Welcome to the studio, Harriet. Thanks. This article came out in 2015, and uh, you were doing research for your book, you know, for many years before this. Was Zika something that had come up in your research, and were you surprised when suddenly everyone was talking about it come 2016? I wasn't really surprised. For me, it's a familiar pattern. A familiar because I had done so much, you know, reading about similar situations, and um, the interesting thing is that Zika had actually been discovered in, what, 1947, It moved to humans by 1952. So for a while, this had been like a roller coaster ride, you know. We're not really tracking it, but we're seeing that it's becoming more common. It's it's infecting humans, infecting humans in more and more countries. And then suddenly, things happen very quickly. I will say I was surprised by how quickly it seemed to move from um, Brazil to the U.S. But it's, you know, certainly not alone. I mean, that's a pattern now. We're seeing uh, so many disorders do exactly that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you would have thought by now we would have learned with these other diseases, too. Do you think you can start with some basics? Like, what makes a tropical disease neglected? I think that it's largely an economic dearth with an almost complete absence of a viable healthcare infrastructure. There either was never a very good infrastructure or it's been ravaged by war 
by colonial occupation, by all kinds of economic pressures. So they don't have the benefit of the things we take for granted here in terms of not just having access to personal health care, but also disease surveillance. You know, here, when we have an outbreak of disease, there are CDC and local public health agencies that converge to find out what's happened, what's causing it, what should people do to protect themselves, what should healthcare professionals do. There is none of this in many of the countries that I'm talking about in the article, The Wealth Curve. In these countries, people often don't have access to health care, even in emergencies. So that's one of the things that characterize like this vast vacuum of services that leads not only to poor health, but also to ignorance about what diseases are affecting people, how many people they're affecting, and what the consequences are. They really do not have the luxury of trying to determine what happens in the after effect of infection, or even to discover that the people who are survivors might be left with intellectual deficits. And what about the research that goes into these diseases? So following the Ebola outbreak, there was a huge outpouring of money into vaccine research, but this disease has been around for decades, so why is there this lack of interest? Well, I hate to sound cynical, but the most logical way of looking at it is we become interested when it threatens to affect us, not only physically in terms of making us potential victims of a disorder, sometimes when it affects our economy. If you've got an outbreak in an area that's economically important to us, then we may, you know, take concerted action. Well, now our interests are threatened with Zika. And even before the Zika outbreak, you wrote that um, the big five diseases had already hit the United States. Can you talk about those a little bit? We don't really hear about Chagas disease or toxocariasiasis or toxoplasmosis or any of these unpronounceable things on a regular <laughs> basis. But they're here already. Exactly. And um, there have been cases where sometimes healthcare providers were not aware of the fact that they're here. I gave the example of someone who was told that he couldn't donate blood because he had Chagas disease. This is a person in the United States. And his doctor responded, that disease doesn't exist here in the United States. It's a tropical disease. Well, it exists here now. So Chagas disease, cystericosis, which is a horrible disease, basically tapeworms in your brain, toxocariasis, which is spread by dogs, toxoplasmosis, which is spread by cats, and trichomoniasis, which is spread by parasites of pigs. So these, these are called the big five diseases, and they are affecting people in the U.S., unfortunately. They tend to be concentrated in the poorest areas of the U.S., partly because these diseases are caused by pathogens that are dependent on heat. Many microbes are only functional within a narrow temperature range, and many times their life cycles depend on heat. That's important. Poverty is also important. Chagas disease, for example, is spread by a bug, popularly called the kissing bug. This bug likes to live in the wood of degraded houses, houses that have not been kept up. So if you've got housing that has many, many chinks and many openings, it's got really uh, roughened wood, the bug loves this kind of environment, so it likes poor housing. What does that add up to? The people who are sickened are people of color. Chagas disease mostly affects Hispanic people living in the nation's um, warmest areas, say in the Texas area. 
and toxicoriasis, which I mentioned earlier as being spread by dogs, um, you think being spread by dogs would be pretty democratic because we love dogs and everyone has dogs, but it affects mostly African Americans. I think there are 2.8 million African Americans at last count infected with it. So there's not an equitable distribution of this illness. And of course, in this country, we've got a the hangover of we have a long history of segregation. It's ended now, but we haven't been able to shake off its effects completely. So you still have large parts of the country where you have racially delineated areas. And those areas are going to be very often the ones where you're going to find people suffering from these infections. Obviously, the best method would be prevention. But suppose you've already been infected. Does treatment help or is it too late at that point? You are absolutely right. It will never be as effective as prevention, and there are several reasons why. Sometimes the treatment can be almost as bad as the disease. I'm thinking of a cystericosis, which is caused by tapeworms in the brain, nobody's favorite subject, right? And there's actually a medication that will kill them, but the medication also harms the brain. There have been studies done of Jamaican kids infected with whipworm, and they found that you can kill the whipworm and stop the intellectual deterioration, but you can't bring back the lost function with medication. And this is why prevention is so much better an approach. Another reason why, too, which is unfortunately is man-made, has to do with actions by the pharmaceutical industry, which has scaled back dramatically their production of antibiotics. It's much more difficult to find a, a new drug that will be effective. Are there any steps that state organizations or the CDC could be taking now to make the situation better? Yes, and they are. The most effective um, route for many of these is vaccines. Unlike some other types of treatment, vaccines can be given out without a huge concentration of healthcare workers. Essentially, you can go in with vaccines and inoculate an entire village without requiring a lot of healthcare workers, without requiring a lot of expertise or testing or maintenance. So it's very effective in that way. Other approaches include things that are tailored to the type of pathogen you're dealing with. Zika, for example, like Many other infectious diseases in this part of the world are carried by mosquitoes. And sometimes you're looking at one mosquito that will transmit a variety of illnesses. So if you can address this mosquito, if you can prevent it from infecting a lot of people, you can prevent a whole parcel of diseases, not just one. Right. And the big elephant in the room so far is climate change. So how is that affecting things? You know, climate is a very, very important factor, although what's interesting is that we didn't need the climate to start changing to make us more vulnerable. The climate change has certainly exacerbated the situation, but the U.S. has a relatively warm climate. If you look at the parts of the country that are the poorest, Texas has some of the poorest areas in the country, and it's got some of the highest temperatures. So when you have these pathogens... It's very easy for them to cross the border. They only thrive within a narrow temperature range, which is the temperature range they're going to find right here in the U.S., just like they found it in Brazil and Africa. So it's very welcoming for them. But climate change is expanding the range. These mosquitoes that carry several types of disorders and have been carrying them throughout the developing world, their range is expanding now out of the southern U.S., and into, into more temperate areas of the country. So we're going to see more of these disorders in larger swathes of the U.S. And there's also some meteorological events. Um, Hurricane Katrina encouraged the proliferation of several insects that carry things like Chagas and Schistosomiasis. 
And a truly science fiction scenario is winds. If you look over Africa, for example, you've got winds 15,000 feet high that are traversing the Atlantic and carrying the pathogens of developing world with them. So you will find in parts of the southern U.S. and parts of Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, these pathogens are being blown directly onto the front yards and school grounds of Americans. Wow. So even without travelers coming in and out of the U.S., even without increased global temperatures, we have dust coming in. (laughs) Exactly. You know, I think it's natural behavior for people to focus on people as vectors of disorder. You know, we have a deep-seated and a very logical fear of infections to which we haven't been exposed. So when strange people come into our area, one of the reasons why we often have a harbor distaste or a fear of strangers is that we're worried about the infections they may be carrying. But the reality is, even without them, the climate would do a really good job of bringing them. Yeah, that can be really scary. It's very scary. (laughs) Do you think that our experience with Zika is going to improve things for the future? Do you think it's going to change the way we deal with neglected tropical diseases like it? I hope it will. I think it may because... We have now an infection we can't ignore, that we can't dismiss as somebody else's problem. So unfortunately, for those reasons, it's going to command our attention. We are going to invest in it. I hope we're going to invest in it a lot more than we have so far. But what's going to be our largest problem in terms of the political will to address it is probably best exemplified by what happened when a decision was being made to look into treatments for Zika. What was happening, the debate was all about taking money from addressing Ebola and, and investing into Zika, which I thought was exactly the wrong way to go. I mean, it shows a certain attitude toward these diseases that um, is a reluctance to invest in them. And the idea that, you know, you thought would be acceptable to move funding from Ebola to Zika shows that there's not enough uh, respect for the fact that Ebola is not going anywhere because it's not threatening us immediately as we feared that it would is no reason to ignore it. Uh, We have this episodic approach. Okay, we're going to focus on Ebola. Okay, that's over. Wow, now we can move on to Zika. No, that's not what's happening. This is shown to be a pattern. It's a pattern that's going to repeat. We know this, and it's time to take a more comprehensive approach to it. Right, right. Has that kind of comprehensive approach been tried with those big five diseases in the states? Some of them are already endemic in certain populations. Like, are they getting the care and attention that they need? No, no. And that approach has not been taken. Um, I'm I'm fighting the temptation to say all kinds of cynical things right now, but that approach hasn't been taken. And you really have to wonder if it hasn't been taken because of the people whom it's affecting. It's affecting Mm -hmm. poor people if it were affecting people who were less marginalized. Let's say, heaven forbid, these diseases became endemic in Connecticut. I think that if that happened, we'd sit up and we'd take more notice and we would devise uh, focused, long-term approaches to it, which is what we need to do now. It reminds me a little bit of the current opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. We've had a heroin epidemic in this country for a while, and it's you know it was affecting mostly marginalized poor populations. And now it's more widespread, and suddenly it's getting all of this media attention. Yes, that has not escaped my notice. You know, the war on drugs actually became a war on poor people of color. 
And the punitive approach has been abandoned now because now there are um, people, people who are white, people who have money, high socioeconomic status people are seen to be suffering from drug use. And now we have a medical model, one that is much more merciful, one is much more appropriate and therapeutic, the model we should have had all along. It's a fact that we can't ignore that our medical approaches have often been tailored to people of high economic status. And aside from the million and one ethical problems with that, the medical problem with that is that microbes are democratic. Hmm. So if you are going to fail to treat Chagas disease in poor African-American and Hispanic populations in the Deep South, soon you will have them at your doorstep in Connecticut and there'll be no drugs to, to overdress it. Yeah, unfortunately, it is true. Well, thank you so much for talking with me about this um, cynical and, and slightly <laughs> depressing issue. Is there is there a ray of hope at the end of the tunnel? Can we end on a good note? Well, it's up to us. And there's more than a ray of hope. We're perfectly capable of addressing this. And we can address it in a very efficient way. You know, one of the things as a medical writer, observer of medicine, I'm constantly amazed and impressed at how clever researchers are and public health people are when they set their minds to addressing a problem. I mean, their solutions can be so elegant and so imaginative all in one. And so I don't have any doubt that we're able to stem this. I'm, I'm sure we can do it in a way that's going to be long lasting. But we have to decide that's what we want to do. And so far, we have not decided to. Brian Doyle is no film scholar. But he's an obsessive consumer of classic American movies, especially ones starring certain chiseled Western cowboys or starry-eyed ingenues from Hollywood's golden age. He's written about movies before on his long-running Epiphanies blog, and in our upcoming winter issue, he takes a deep dive into Errol Flynn's dashing, dastardly catalog. But we had to know, Brian, why do you go on these benders? Hi, Brian Doyle here, talking about movies. First, I should explain, I guess, why I'm such a movie fanatic um, and why I've watched long runs and skeins of movies all at the same time. My lovely bride uh, teaches art to kids in the hospitals on Friday night. So she doesn't come home till 11 p.m. So from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. on Friday night, I watch movies with the dog. And the dog is really into westerns and uh, has, I think has a crush on Peter O'Toole, which is disturbing. But first we started with uh, Rin Tin Tin and Lassie movies, movies with dogs. He was not interested. Then we went to westerns, and that's how we get sucked into the world of John Wayne. So I watched, no kidding, 40 John Wayne movies in a row. Every Friday night we watched a John Wayne movie, sometimes two. And my conclusion was John Wayne is an unbelievably great actor. Everybody thinks that John Wayne played John Wayne, but the fact is I think after 40 movies I can say safely that John Wayne is really great at playing tough guys with tender hearts. And my conclusion was there's sort of three kinds of John Wayne movie. There's the one where he's superb and the supporting cast is excellent and the plot is um, coherent and the direction is wonderful, like in The Searchers, for example. Then there are John Wayne movies in which he's great and one other part of that 
um, package is great. And then there are movies that are terrible, but John Wayne remains great. So it seems to me the basic John Wayne movies, with total respect to The Searchers, which is a beautiful, beautiful movie, um, I don't think it's actually a great movie. If you can only see two or three John Wayne movies and really, really get into it, I would recommend The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, True Grit, The Shootist, and uh, probably they were expendable. Um, so that set us off, the dog and I, into a long series of uh, film festivals. And so the next one that really engaged me that I ended up writing about for The American Scholar was Errol Flynn. I realized I'd never really seen an Errol Flynn movie, um, and all I knew about him was The Dashing Swordsman or The Legend of the Dashing Swordsman. And So I sat down and watched 20 Errol Flynn movies in a row, and it was actually really revelatory. The same thing struck me, that Errol Flynn is actually an unbelievably great actor. And it's not just that he's playing Errol Flynn. There's a certain lightness of spirit, a lightness of physicality in the man. He was a great athlete. He was witty. He was humorous. He had a, a quick, shining glance in almost all of his movies. You see the, the sort of dry humor of the man. And as with all great actors, the truly great actors, they are able to be their famous selves, their actual real famous selves, and completely soaked in the character at the same time. Consider, for example, Cary Grant. You know it's Cary Grant on the screen. You know it's the famous Cary Grant, probably the greatest American actor of all time. But, and yet he is, uh, in the Philadelphia story, for example, C.K. Dexter Haven. See, both things are true at the same time. They can inhabit both of those parts. So, so the same thing with Errol Flynn. There are some basic um, Errol Flynn movies, it seems to me. Um, and I really recommend that everybody listening to this go and rent a couple and, and actually watch an Errol Flynn movie, which you haven't really done probably since you're about 13 years old. Really and truly, if you're curious at all about Errol Flynn, see The Seahawk and Gentleman Jim in particular. And then uh, probably one of the war movies, I would recommend, I think, Edge of Darkness or Objective Burma. Those are the two best. While we're on the subject of movie film festivals, um, we recently, the dog and I, uh, had an Audrey Hepburn film festival. And the five I would particularly recommend, with great respect for Breakfast at Tiffany's, I think that the better movie is How to Steal a Million with Peter O'Toole. It is witty and funny, and there's an extraordinary scene where the two of them are locked in a closet together, which is physical comedy at its best. They really like each other, you can tell, in the movie which is always a plus when you're watching a movie to, see, to sense that the actors really are enjoying themselves in the part. She's great in Sabrina with Humphrey Bogart and William Holden. Um, Bogart is trying desperately to play a younger role and pulls it off. He's a great, great actor. She's unbelievably great in Roman Holiday, which was her very first film. Uh, she was with Gregory Peck, where she plays a princess who takes a day off, basically. And she's very good in Funny Face with uh, Fred Astaire. But the, but the quintessential... Audrey Hepburn movie, I think, has had a steel million with Peter O'Toole. Oh, God, that's beautiful. Speaking of the great Peter O'Toole, who is an extraordinary actor, and I love him to death, and my dog has a crush on him, my favorite year, uh, which is not only a dashing and funny movie, but he's actually playing, I think, a form of Errol Flynn. He's playing a uh, former uh, film superstar who's now reduced to TV specials. And so and it's just wonderful. It's very funny. And O'Toole overplays with, with panache and absolute delight. You can see him just totally eating the scenes. <laughs> it's just a great movie. Um, he's also very good in Goodbye, Mr. Chips, where he plays a very quiet role. He's a schoolmaster, and, and it's the complete reverse of a movie like My Favorite Year where he's, where he's flying around and making witty remarks. He underplays beautifully in Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Um, he's in an interesting movie 
called Rogue Mail, which was a great um, book in its day. Kind of a dark movie about a guy who tries to assassinate Hitler. And then um, he's in Beckett with Richard Burton, and that is well worth watching for those two best friends really enjoying the fact that they're playing rivals, essentially, in that movie Beckett. Um, and yes, of course, you should see Lawrence of Arabia, although having just seen it several times in the past few months, my conclusion, oddly, is that it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful movie. I don't know that it's a great movie, to be honest. For all the attention paid to it as one of the great movies ever made, you know it's too long, and it could have been cut by 45 minutes easily, probably by an hour. It is gloriously beautiful, but it will take you three days to see it. Why did I pick these particular actors, you ask? It's a very good question. Um, and the answer is sort of because I had time, because I, I knew that I could stretch out and really dive into um, a John Wayne and, and really sort of examine over the course of a lot of work how good was the artist. Um, and, and so that appealed to me. I wanted to pick actors in a funny way who were famous, but I don't really know why, you know. Before that, before my burst of John Wayne mania, for example, I'd probably only seen, oh, maybe eight John Wayne movies over the course of a long lifetime. And But I thought, you know, how good an actor is he? This is a famous American figure. Same thing with Errol Flynn. I mean, I have an impression of Errol Flynn, but to actually watch 20 Errol Flynn movies is to really dive into the question, was he a great actor? How good was he? How does he stack up against other great action figures? Could he segue into a later more thoughtful, quieter role? Answer, no. The later Errol Flynn movies are not very good. He's lost his light. He's not as light in spirit or light in body as he was. And it was those two things were crucial to the great actor. You know, to watch several Audrey Hepburn movies is to begin to look and see, was she famous for only being young and beautiful or could, was she actually a great actress? And so in a funny way, it was sort of an intellectual and emotional um, project to to dive into the art of acting. Theater is such an extraordinary art. You know, when it's done well, it's created in front of you, and you completely believe, you're completely sucked into the world of the film or of the play. And and all of us know that feeling of when the, when the play or the movie comes to an end, you suddenly snap awake and realize, oh, right, you're on Earth. You're not actually in New York City with George Pappard and Audrey Hepburn, or you're not actually on a ship in the in the Caribbean with Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland. It's like reading long strings of books. You know, to sit down and read 10 Graham Greene novels at once is to really get into the art of Graham Greene and begin to understand how is he working? How great a craftsman is he? Um, what is it that he does so well that you hardly see, that you hardly notice? Um, I enjoy that, to read uh, all of Joyce Carey, the great novelist uh, who wrote The Horse's Mouth, or, or to read several Dickens in a row, or or eight Joseph Conrad novels in a row, is to really plunge, I think, into that artist's work and craft and vision. And that's what I wanted to do with these films in particular. So, Well, that will sum it up from um, a film fanatic who has no degrees in film, has never studied film, but has all the time in the world every Friday night to really, really delve into this extraordinary art, especially American art. <laughs> Now let's go to the Free Library of Philadelphia to eavesdrop on a conversation between Anthony Grafton, a professor of history at Princeton and a member of our editorial board, and Ruth Skur, who just published the most curious biography of the most curious biographer in the world. It's called John Aubrey, My Own Life, and it's a portrait in his own words of the first modern biographer, 
who is most famous for writing The Brief Lives, short, informal biographies of 17th century men like Thomas Hobbes, Francis Bacon, and the ubiquitous William Shakespeare. Ruth Skur pulled together her biography from Aubrey's letters, fragments, and scraps of paper to create a portrait of the man who chased down the little details of some pretty great lives. I'm Tony. This is Ruth. So let me start by asking you to do something awful. Oh my God. <laughs> if you had to give the elevator speech about John Aubrey, what would you say about him now? I would say he is attractive as a sort of everyman. He's not a genius. Um, he's not the person who pushes forward the frontiers of scientific knowledge. But he is deeply engaged in trying to promote understanding at a time when the disciplines aren't separated out. So I see him as a pioneer. And a final thing I'd say is that he has a very unusual sense of historical time. He knew that what he was doing was talking to the future. And he's gathering up those materials, the anecdotes, the stories, so that he can deposit that in a form in which posterity, i.e. us, is going to be grateful. It's very hard to put this man into any mm. box, but one box people sometimes put him in is that of an antiquary. Yes. And could you say a little about that, about Aubrey and the, the way he thinks of the past? I think that's the key to all the different enthusiasms he has. So what Aubrey says about antiquaries is that they are born, they're not made. That into every generation, just as there are some very talented poets, there are some people with that special talent for treasuring the past. And not just the grand narratives, but the details, the small pieces of the past which would be forgotten. The way he describes it to himself is he is the person who collects up the splinters of wood after a shipwreck. So time is a shipwreck. And then there are these fragments, and they could be in the form of stories, they could be objects, they could be paintings, they're rarities, they're things that he thinks are precious evidence about the past. And he's very interested, isn't he, in how his subjects look, what they wore, how they bore themselves. Yes, that's right. I mean, he's a very visual person. That's one of the reasons he is so vivid and his prose is like almost like looking back in time because he will tell you what people looked like, um, what they wore. Uh, he even does a kind of collection of, of the history of, of shoes as well. I mean, that's just one of his many, many sidelines. But um, he'll describe people's hair, you know, these brilliant descriptions of them having a moist curl, is one of them, right, he says, of, of Harrington. So this is a time in which being a learned man um, in, in requires more than reading skills. You've got to be able to look. You've got to be able to draw. There's a real change in the, in the nature of what learning itself That's is. That's right. I mean, the looking is really crucial. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, Aubrey, born in Wiltshire, grew up near Stonehenge. So he knew those stones very well from childhood. And he got involved in the debate, how old is Stonehenge? And Inigo Jones, obviously much more successful worldly than Aubrey, 
is sure that it's Roman, absolutely sure it's Roman. And William Charlton, who's also a member of the Royal Society and very, very um, respected and, and much, much more secure in his social standing than Aubrey, says, no, no, it's Danish. And not only that, the Danes use this to make their government decisions and they stood on top of the stones to cast their votes. And in the margin, Aubrey writes, well, they must have been mighty sober if they stood on those stones. <laughs> very, very normal. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, these guys are, are manipulating the evidence. They have a theory, but they're not looking at the evidence. Is Aubrey also, is he something other than an antiquary? Could you say he's yes. know, a virtuoso or something he, like that? He is. I mean, he, his interests don't just go to the past. He's not just looking backwards. He's not even just looking at the present. He is looking to the future. And he's also, this is a very important thing, the future... Subsequent generations were confused about the extent to which Aubrey was a gossip, right? But actually, Aubrey never wanted to do any harm with that information. He thought that before it was published, if it was ever going to be published, the subjects of the biographies and himself should be rotten in the ground like meddlers. That's what he says. So it's not a question of causing trouble. He's, if, if, he's, if he's a bit like a journalist recording his time, he's definitely not a tabloid journalist. He's, he's not a scandal monger. And if you were Milton's widow and you saw Aubrey coming up the garden path and you knew this was a gossip and a scandal monger, you would not invite him into the house and give him your stories. So he really has a sense that we're waiting. I think so, yes. <laughs> a confident historian, and he was right. Um, Aubrey spends a lot of time in London, and mm -hmm. he tells us a lot in your book about life in London, lively social scene, yeah. and part of it is very male. I mean, mm -hmm. you can already see a little bit of what will become the London, the pattern of male social life in London for centuries. Yes, but we mustn't forget the women. So in the brief lives, there are very few female lives. You have to be very beautiful or the mistress of a very important man before you make it in to the brief lives in your own right. But Aubrey's method of biographical collection means he always goes and collects stories from the women who have been involved in those male lives. He knows the women are hugely important. And he says very explicitly that he doesn't disdain to learn from women, that he will go and find truth from asking women what they remember. This is something that's very striking. The Aubrey who is so modern, the historian who's interested in, I mean, the hottest thing in history right now is the history of material objects. Yeah. And Aubrey's already doing that in 1670. Mm. Um, Aubrey is right up to date with the new science. He's interested mm. in transfusion, injection, mm. all the things that are right at the cutting edge of the cutting edge of the, of the world of natural inquiry, which is London in the 1660s mm. and after. But isn't Aubrey also really interested in witchcraft, magic, astrology? Yes, so Aubrey is one of the people in his generation who still thinks that astrology is a science and that it's going to be put 
on a more secure foundation as a result of these new empirical methods. He has his own consultations with astrologers. Now, one response to that would be, well, this is terribly backward. You know, who is this guy who's collecting all this hocus-pocus stuff? But another way is to understand that actually Aubrey tells us what people believe. He doesn't say it's true. He shows you what they think about astrology. As a biographer, I became quite fascinated by the way in which this, these astrological um, charts and castings are a form of biography themselves, actually. That they are, they are a coded life. So what sort of a writer is Aubrey in the end? So this is a very interesting question. I personally find Aubrey directly encountered a completely charming and riveting writer. He has a fantastic turn of phrase, and he has a wonderful ear. He will write down the, the words, the strange words, or even sometimes you can almost hear the accents of the ways in which people think, the rhythms of the ways in which people speak. Then there's his wonderful humanity, which underpins his writing. The fact that he doesn't judge. He provides these lives, he provides these stories. He's not going to say, tell you what to think. But the final thing to say about him as a writer is that he doesn't see himself as a writer. He's so modest that when he writes his biography of his friend Thomas Hobbes, he asks other friends, is my style good enough? You know, is this going to be okay? Um, he sees himself as a recorder, as a collector, and so he's not vain. He's not sort of looking at himself in the prose mirror and thinking, oh, that's a good sentence, you know, thing. Nor is he invested in the idea of publication. So he's not trying really to finish these projects. And that's another thing that future generations have misunderstood. I think, who is this chaotic guy who collects all these research notes and just doesn't, publishes hardly anything, just this one mad book at the end of his life with a load of spells in it. You know, what, what, what's going on here? But actually, Aubrey tells you so little about himself because he doesn't think he's very important, right? So although he leaves us this, this great kind of biographical collection through which we know other people, when it comes to himself, he says, well, look, Here's a couple of uh, scrappy pieces of paper about what happened in my life. And if you want, you can have those as an end page in you know, some other book about somebody or something else. You know. And you think, well, thank you, Aubrey. You know, thanks. That, I think, speaks... You know, that was my problem, really. Is, you know, how do you... So often in history, the people who get the big biographies are the people who have lived in a way that expects them. You know, they, they prepared for them, actually. There's the material, there's that sense of expectation, etc. Aubrey's a modest man. He's a self-effacing man. So how do you write a biography of him that keeps him at the centre and you don't keep getting distracted by whatever great discovery Newton has just had or, you know, Milton's latest offering? Yeah, he calls himself the whetstone. So yeah. how do you write the biography of the whetstone rather <laughs> than the knife? And, and the answer is you've done it absolutely triumphantly. Um, one last question from me, and I know you answer this in the book, but I'm sure the audience would like to know. How did you come to Aubrey? 
I think the deep emotional connection for me was that I had worked on the French Revolution, a period of total destruction, bloodshed, um, darkness, and I was very attracted to the idea of working on period of restoration and Aubrey's mildness, his, his concern to preserve rather than destroy is hugely actually emotionally attractive to me as almost a recovery from, from that other revolution. So it was eccentric to go back in time to a previous century and a different country, but I think that there is a deep connection there. Wonderful. Let's thank Ruth Skur for this wonderful description. That's it for Smarty Pants. Join us next week for one feminist icon's take on another. Sandra Gilbert, she of the Mad Woman in the Attic, will be reading her favorite Adrian Rich poems. I hope you'll join us. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.